Hi, I'm Sanera Madani, and I'm a mom of two, a daughter of an immigrant and an unlikely entrepreneur who went from scaling an idea to a billion dollar business. Yes, a billion dollar business. Along the way, I learned that less than 2% of female founders ever hit 1 million in revenue. And I became obsessed on a mission to change that. I believe that there is so much gatekeeping in business knowledge and that we as female entrepreneurs should be learning from other female founders and leaders who have broken the statistics. Since I never went to CEO school, I've had to learn it all the hard way, but you shouldn't have to because we believe that you deserve to have it all. And honestly, nothing bad happens when women make more money. Grab a seat because class is officially in session. Welcome to CEO School. Huma, how are you? I'm so good now that I have my tea and we're sitting in this uh, very intimate, beautiful space together. We are. I'm so happy that you're here. Today was quite the journey, honestly, today. So I literally just arrived. When I say I literally just arrived, it was like 6.02 that I landed. And so it is, I'm so happy to be here. It's because I'm meant to be here. I I had a, it was a, it's just been, you know, one of the things I was texting with Huma about earlier is the demands of life nowadays are just getting to like, we do it to ourselves for sure, but it is almost getting to the point where our plates are so, so full. And last night I got home from, it was my, it's my birthday. It was my birthday this weekend. So we're celebrating in Napa. And I came from California home to the babies just so that I could have dinner at home, drop them to school, and then get on with this week's worth of work. But it is so, so, so challenging and struggling. Um, but I appreciate you so much. You've been a sister and a mentor for the last several years. We got a chance uh, to meet, actually, and celebrate a very special holiday. And so I would love uh, for uh, we celebrated Eid together, but without further ado, I would love for the audience just to get to know Huma a bit. I, you know, there's many that, of course, you know, know your beautiful story and um, a, a lot about you, but I'd love to hear it from you on just your background, how you grew up, and, you know, what makes Huma today Huma? Well, first of all, I'm so thrilled uh, to be on this podcast with you. To be honest, the minute I met you, I, I thought, how do we not know each other? <laughs> yeah, I know. It felt that way. It really felt like family. You, you have those experiences mm -hmm. with people where you just meet them and connect. And, uh, and, and you and I have certainly had that. And I also want to thank Diane, Christine, and Tim for having us um, here tonight because so much of what I try to intentionally do in my life is to walk around and share my story and receive other people's stories. And I think it's one of the most powerful things that a woman can do today um, is to share her story because we've only recently kind of gotten into that place. So my story is this. Um, uh, I am uh, a product of immigrant parents. Some of you might actually um, relate to that. My parents were Fulbright scholars. They um, met at University of Pennsylvania and fell in love. My father was Indian. My mother was from Pakistan. And for those of you who know the history of those two countries, <laughs> that was not really a love that was necessarily allowed. And so that is how they got asylum here. It's uh, You could not live in peace and go back in the 1960s living in your country. So they got married. And they moved to Michigan, where they both got jobs. And um, and I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I was going to have an entire Midwestern life um, ahead of me. And except that when I was two, my father went for a checkup and was diagnosed with progressive renal failure. And he was told he had five to 10 years to live and to get his affairs in order. And when 
I sat to write my story, it's actually one of the first lines, Samira, that I just poured out of me, because as you know, I've told you the story, I like vomited on paper when I started writing my book. But one of the first lines I wrote was my father was told he was dying, and so he went out and we lived. And we did. Two months later, we moved to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And, um, and we, my parents took us on this extraordinary adventure, and they didn't know how long my dad had, and so every summer, we got to explore the world and go to different languages and cultures and spaces and places. And one of the things, and you know, you, you don't even realize this is happening to you when it happens to you, but it gave me this sort of sense of like real confidence and comfort. It didn't matter where I was, like recognizing, and in part because my parents were very into like know your roots. And you know, my dad will always say people are like plants, and a plant is only as good as its roots. That if you nourish those roots, if you take care of that soil. It doesn't matter, winter, weather, storm, et cetera, the plant is going to be okay. And that's, that was the grounding that gave me that ability to land in Washington. The first time I lived in this country was when I came to university. And two years later, I was working in the White House. Uh, Bill Clinton was president. Hillary Clinton was our first lady. And, um, and it was an extraordinary story. It was 27 years in, um, in public life. And, and to be, I mean, back then, let me tell you something. There were no 21-year-old brown girls wandering around. Certainly nobody celebrating Eid. And you know, Samira, that's one of the reasons why what we did together was so special. And I flew back from the Maldives in time for the Eid dinner that you hosted. Because when I was walking around back in the 90s, people were like, what is this thing? You don't eat? Like, what? You don't eat during the day? And you fast? And is that yoga when you're praying? Like, they didn't understand any of those things because it was such a unique um, experience. And to, so to now have Eid celebrations, and that's known and accepted and welcome is, is really special. So that's my story in a nutshell. Oh my God. I love that so much. And I think that's one of the reasons why Huma and I connected so deeply. Part of, you know, for those that know me, know how much my family is like, the, it's such a, it's such a similar background. You know, I, you know, my, my father wasn't told that he was dying. My father, it was kind of the opposite. He, we went to go on an adventure. My father was a serial entrepreneur. He they came to America um, separately, my parents fell in love in Chicago. Their first date was a Cubs game. And so I, I was born in Chicago. Uh, Sal was born in Dallas. I grew up in Texas most of my life. But he was on a pursuit for the American dream. And the American dream was, you know, entrepreneurship for them came out of necessity. It wasn't because entrepreneurship was sexy. They were not educated. There was no other way to go achieve financial freedom and financial success without doing it for yourself. And the American dream also came from education. And I think that that's where they didn't have the education. Like your parents were professors. Um, you know, for them, it was all about making sure that Sal and I had like the greatest education. I think my mother still asks me why I don't have an MBA, by the way. So it is still on her. No, it, yeah, it is, it is still date. Like it is literally still weekly Sunday conversation on you know, if Harvard, if I'm like going to MBA school at Harvard yet or business school at Harvard, um, like, mom, they're just going to give me the honorary degree at this point. <laughs> it really, for a lot of our parents, my parents said, you can do anything you want. I don't care what you do. All our only requirement is that you be educated. Yeah, you could be anything. You could be anything, but as long as there's like a doctor or an MD yeah, <laughs> like right next to it. Yeah. I'm also the least educated member of my family. <laughs> so, so it was really similar in that sense. Um, and then, you know, 
when my father had some success in business, his success in business was to make literally a million dollars. Like that was like to to have a million dollars. And he had and, and in the 80s and in the 90s, I mean, he did it. He 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 did it. And when he had the money in the bank account, the first thing he wanted to do was move back home to teach his kids like culture. So we packed up and moved to Karachi. So I was actually American born, okay, but then moved to Karachi, Pakistan at eight years old. And lived in Karachi for four years where we I, I went to an American school because I didn't speak the language. I didn't under like it was like I was a very non-traditional, uh, you know, American like raised Muslim. And then we were thrown into Karachi and then we were back in three years because like you think you want to go back home and it's so different. Um, but that was part. And we, we traveled. We did all the things. But family is something that is it's it's ingrained in our in our heritage in our culture and in our values and i think that when people ask me what has been my secret it is it's the val it's the value of putting our family first and it's it extends from not just this family but it's i mean i got a chance to build a business with my brother you know but beyond that our team our culture every single thing everyone around us always feels like family and i know that's true for your success as well you know samira i you talk about it in such a beautiful way but I really think what your dad and your mom and you know what you've done with Sal is really something to be commended because growing up I mean I'm a little older than you but for those of us who have a South Asian or Southeast Asian background I think the generation above us was just so there was a lot of you should do that and the number of times I would go home to New Jersey in the middle of working at the White House and like tell Hillary to do this and tell Oh my God, I could totally see your like brown dad. Yeah, tell, tell, tell. And it's sort of, but this, this notion of like going out there and being entrepreneurial, I mean, it's, not, it's you know, I think it's a really extraordinary thing that your your father did, that your family has done. And uh, and it's one of the reasons you're a success. And no, and same for you. And, and and I know that we definitely connect. And I've gotten a chance to like meet your son and your and your sisters. And it, it really does. And I think that that is, I think that's a beautiful thing that I, w I want to see more in business because I think so often, I mean, I was told every step of the way, this was like, Sanira, like, you, like, this is business that's not personal. Ugh. This is like the thing that I like, I had, I had like, if my fat merchant was like the first name of the company, but I had the company before I gave birth to my babies. Like this is personal. Business is personal. It's the most personal thing to me. Yet in the way that we should be doing business, it shouldn't be personal. I like never, never everything. It is personal. This is personal to me. And I think that that adds to like, you can tell the level of care for the companies that do value their, their employee, like their team, right? You know, they, they value their team. They value their customers. They value the product that they put out. So I do believe that business yeah, is personal. You know, and to the point that you were making about women, more women being at the table. I mean, I think I was spoiled that when I started working in politics in 1996, I mean, I was, you know, you know, it was like politics on steroids. I mean, you absolutely had a sink or swim kind of, they sort of threw you in the deep end. And if you could do the job, great. And if you couldn't, you know, said so there was plenty of other young women they could try out for it. And, but the ethos, the value system was that, and this came from the top, this came from Hillary, this notion that there was always room at the table for another woman and that it was incumbent, like we were required that as we were climbing up that ladder of opportunity, that we could not step on the fingers of our sisters below us, that it was required of us to reach below and, and, and pull them up. And that is, you know, that's a sort of, that was a microcosm. But, you know, part of it is, I mean, how many, how often does anybody in this room go into something professionally and you have no idea what you're doing? 
In fact, one of my favorite stories that I, you know, I tell in my book is that the very first time they said, well, you're going to go and staff the first lady to, you know, give this big speech in Washington. No clue what I was doing, except I, you know, did, you know, was really, I, look, and I want to back up by saying when I started out doing what I did in politics, I was never the best at anything that I did. I was never the smartest, the prettiest, you know, the best at anything. But what I was prepared to do... I mean, I could really beg to differ. <laughs> you can ask all of my colleagues, all my sisters in Hillary land. But I was prepared to, you know, outwork... And it sounds like mean Huma. That doesn't... But, and this is where you and I connect, because basically what drove me was being a problem solver. And so I remember this, mm -hmm. we're driving, you know, in this, she's in a limousine, I'm in the staff car, several cars back, and I'm holding her speech, like, for dear life in my hand, and we get to the event, and I run up to the stage and put the speech you know, on there, and then, and then you're always told as a staffer, you're supposed to be invisible. You know, you're, you're supposed to be seen, not seen or heard, just disappear, do your work and disappear. And so she goes up on the stage and got this whole phalanx of press in, in, in front of her, and then she's about to go up on stage, and she does this, which is like, uh -oh. oh, up the stage, like, this is disastrous. Yeah. So I go up the stage, she leans over, and she says, this is the wrong speech. <gasps> and... Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that feeling of from the top of my head to my toe, fire, shaking, I'm on camera. And so I had two choices, which is essentially, you know, faint, which is what I wanted to do, or basically say the one thing that became my go-to phrase, or to my screwed, screwed something up, and I said, I got it. I didn't have it, obviously, did not have it. And I raced out, because in that whole 25-minute drive that I was carrying my version of the speech, Hillary was handwriting her, in her version of the speech, edits to the speech. So I run out to the car, open the limousine door, and find the actual right copy of the speech, race back in. She's already at the podium starting to give the speech. My heart is racing yeah. right now. She's like rearranging the pages when she's up there. She gets off stage. While she was on stage, I called White, the White House operator because we didn't have, there was no such thing as I, I mean, <laughs> we had pagers. Yeah. And I call my boss. I said, look, I'm about to be fired. Like literally the first lady is giving this huge speech on healthcare and I don't, I, you know, gave her the wrong one. She walks off stage and she says, thanks me for getting the speech on time. And she says, you should ride in the limo with me from now on. And it was, and that to me, and I get, tell you that story because when you talk about a good mentor, especially yeah. professionally, is that she could have done the obvious, which is like, you suck. Like, <laughs> you're fired or, you know, you have one more chance. But what she did was recognize her own mistake in that situation and saying, you know, the only way for this very symbiotic relationship to work for you to know everything that I need, you need to be there. And that was my first day, you know, in the limo. And I think it's, I con I'm very conscious about that when I'm sort of mentoring younger women now too, of what's my responsibility in helping them learn and grow and because often you just don't know and you're just doing the best you can. What a beautiful story. And this is why she'll always be my president. <laughs> no, that is that. And it's so it's so true. And I, I so so what happens next? Right. So how did you go? Like, tell us a little bit about your journey in politics, the career with Hillary. Yeah. I want to know all the details about the 2016, whatever you can share um, on the election and just the movement. I think one of the most like the thing that I really when I look at you, I look at someone who inspires movements, Huma. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was a movement. That was a movement in time, whether the like whatever happened in whatever direction that we went. And this is not a political show or it's not about politics. But I do think that it was a time for women at that time. Yeah. And it really it, it really was like just every everything about that election was the for the first time I felt very empowered as a woman in every which fucking way. 
Like every which way it felt like this is going to be some change for us and our voice matters. And I could see all the women in the room like nodding their heads. And so when I think about when I think about you and that in your career, what I get most inspired by is the movement and you build movement. So I want to hear about that journey. Glad we're having this conversation because I think it's such an important conversation to be having, especially you know today. And I know we're not having a political conversation, but when you think about the way that our political discourse has degraded into spaces and places that I could not have possibly imagined, you know, I go back to my origin story and I tell this to all of my colleagues whenever I'm talking to you know people who are in administration and government right now, or you know working in the Senate. You know, and 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 talking about the challenges uh, it, it, they they currently have, and I always go back to my starting point. Like, living in a democracy is a luxury, and this is somebody, and it is not something that we should take for granted. And I am somebody who did not grow up in a democracy. I never voted until I started working um, for for Hillary. So that is a gift, and we're living in a time where eighty percent of our world's population is living under non-democratic rule. 80% of the world wow. lives under a non-democratic So just think truly of how precious this is um, that you have. Now, I want to take you back, for those of you, I'm going to give a little history lesson. I never thought I would do this. But in 1995, back then, for those of you who remember, I mean, we were the sole superpower in the world. I mean, arguably. I mean, everything felt possible. We were, you know, the age of... You know, cable news was the thing, and to be, you know, in the, you know, 20, this 24-hour news cycle, constantly kind of feeding the stories, these very proactive stories, you know, uh, we were on our way to essentially dissolving the debt, thanks to, you know, Bill Clinton's leadership. We were actively involved in, um, you know, helping uh, other countries that were dealing with their own crises and their own, and their own wars, and we were kind of seen as the, nothing was happening without America at the forefront and leading, and again, another very personal story was back then, we were talking about an active Middle East peace deal that, you know, that part of the world was convulsing, and it was, and I was at Camp David, I, 20, I spent my 25th birthday at Camp David as those talks were happening, and it was an extraordinary experience, so, so that was the sense, like, everything felt possible, and I really appreciate your saying, you know, I, I did not come from a family of Democrats, by the way, I think now everyone associates me as a Democrat, and I am a Democrat, but I, you know, my family is Republican and was Republican, I should say, and and that was pretty normal back, you know, back in the '90s. A lot of South Asians. You yeah, know, same with my family. Yeah, socially conservative. It was much, you know, more normal to be Republican, and it, I fell in love with the commitment, the work, the cause. You had a first lady traveling around the world talking about women's rights or human rights, and just doing things that no woman had done before her. What that led to was, you know, so she then ran for Senate. In 2000, made history. That was the first time a woman it was not e an easy election, but she was a senator for the state. Did an extraordinary, you know, an extraordinary job, and and then she ran for re-election. And then when the 2008 presidential campaign came around, and I now know I walk around New York, and some people don't remember that Hillary ran in 2008. I have to tell you, we had research even then that showed that people did not necessarily trust women. We 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 will support women if you are running for Congress, if you're in Parliament, something collaborative, great. You want to be mayor, governor, CEO, president? Whoa, you know, like I, it was this notion that we didn't, we didn't see women as being in charge, and when you closed your eyes and looked at the commander in chief, you saw Ronald Reagan. So we knew it was going to be hard. What we did not anticipate was the vitriol that existed when it came to sexism. And I say that in 2009, 2016, I'm talking about this from a political lens, but 
what we find is this is really across the board in pretty much all sectors, this idea that we see women are collaborative, we are good leaders, but we don't consciously, and by the way, that's both men and women, we don't consciously see women as in charge and at the yeah. top. And my big, and I talk about I love that you said both men and women don't see. Oh, yes. 100%. And, and I talk about 2016 very in, in detail, the whole chapter in my book, because it was like you couldn't win. So it was, we, we'd go and you'd have one candidate saying, oh, I, uh, what do you not like about Hillary? Well, I don't like her jacket. Or, you know, and the comments I'd get constantly, like, you know, she shouldn't wear so much black. Put her in colored suits. I don't like her in those colored suits. Put her in black. You know, once this Hollywood director called me and said, look, I would, I'd like to do media training, you know, for her. So she's, you know, because when she talks, she's annoying. And it's like, oh, their voice is whatever's distracting. Sounds like she's yelling at me and all that. She reminds me of my mother-in-law or my wife, whatever. Okay, so I asked him, so who, give me your model. Like, who's a woman who you think? Yeah, it's a great question. Give me your model. And he says, her husband. Oh, oh my God. Excellent. Except he's not a woman. Another <laughs> example would be give me this Barack Obama. And it was such, even in that real moment, you guys, in 2016, I felt it. It was like, there is no model. There is no. Because none. she was breaking all of these barriers. And what did we all learn? It didn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, by the way, that night, which is, as the campaign led up to the final days, and we had two years of somebody saying, lock her up, that in the end, the re one of the main reasons she lost the election, aside from all this stuff, like even though a few more million people voted for her, more people in this country voted for her than her opponent. Remind. <laughs> very important to remind people. But at the end, it was women, right? Because it was women essentially you know, going to the polls saying, wait, I don't know what she did, but it's gotta be something, because somebody said she should be locked up, but I don't know what it was. And it was that self-doubt, by the way, how many of us carry self-doubt? Yes. And so what did they do? They just didn't vote. vote. And so you take that, it was, by the way, 77,000 votes is what she lost by. And when you look at sort of all of these factors that went in conscious and unconscious, they had, you know, real world ramifications. And so it's one of the reasons why, like, I intentionally watched the world. You know, when I left the White House, I said, you know, the day I wake up, and don't want to go to work is a day I'm going to quit because you got to follow your passions. But you know, there is research that shows when you tell, there's a study, fascinating study, that when you tell little girls, follow your dreams, follow your passion, do whatever you want. You know what girls typically pick? Things in arts and sciences yeah. and medicine. Tra what they believe is traditional. But when you go to a young girl and say, why don't you pick a field that you think you have long-term job and financial security? Just as many girls pick engineering, science, math, STEM subjects as men do. And so, so much of it is subconscious. So now I've shifted to, you know, being curious and trying things. And it's one of the big mantras. I see her, you and I say, I say this to you all the time. It's, you know, as a woman in charge, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. uncomfortable. You just do. And that is how you learn and you grow. Oh my God, I have so much. I'm like, I don't, like all our hearts feel like it's like <laughs> angry, mad, but sad. Like, right. There is like a part, it's not, there's like the anger comes out, but there is like, there's so much truth to everything that you've said. And for you, the, you and your story is, I mean, and her story, right? Like this is in every single sector this exists, right? So I go back and I relate it to my, my journey as CEO, right? My journey as CEO was very difficult, very, very difficult. And I like I'm here because I I didn't quit. Like that's the only reason. I, like I would say, you know, people ask like, what's the secret to building a billion dollar business? Is like you just keep fucking showing up every day. Like that's it. If you can keep, if you can, if you can handle, because it's gonna get really hard, 
right? You got to love what you do. That's a hundred percent. Cause if you're going to, if you love what you do, you get to show up to do it. But it's, if you just, you like, you just don't quit. Right. And it is so hard. And especially, and I, and I used to hate trying to, I never grew up around what's really interesting. And I think both of us grew up in, in Muslim households, but very liberal in a sense of like, I felt I, I never ever thought about my gender as anything. Like I never thought about my gender growing up. Like I felt I actually had more opportunities than my brother. I was the first born. And I think that that's probably something to do with South Asian families. Like I was first born and my parents were so encouraging for me to do everything and put me first and, you know, just all this stuff until the first time that I was actually aware that I felt different in rooms was when I was, when I was starting my company. That was the first, or when I, or when I was, when I was like working for corporate and, and I think that one of the things, I mean, I have interviewed now, I mean, we are probably, this is episode in like the 300s and I have, you know, mentored and, and we've been over 3,000 women through 3,000 CEOs through CEO school, right? And one of the things that, and I can tell you the things that like, I almost feel like we could write a research paper on talking to women CEOs of what is like holding us back. And it, it's not us, right? And there's parts of it that are us, but the, one of the biggest things that I find is that men are given investment. Men are given titles. Men are given opportunities for their potential, okay? Women are only given that for, for what they've done, okay? So we've had to have that track record to have proved off, to have checked off. Then it's, so it's not like we're being held back. I'm sorry, we're not being held back, but we are held to a different standard. People are going to invest in a man's idea to say, okay, it's not even there, but for the potential that it brings. But if I hadn't come to the table to say I have, and I never, I didn't have a track record of success. I was 26 years old with no money in my bank account, with just an idea. And it was so disruptive. It was so, we started the first subscription-based payment processor. Like I knew that when pay, FinTech was headed in a different direction, I knew what was, I was in the industry. I was paying attention to the customers and I didn't even want to go build it for myself. I was trying to go give it back to my, to, to my bosses, to go do it for our company. Right. And so I knew what I had was important, but I didn't have the, I didn't have the CV or the resume. I didn't have the credentials. I had I hadn't done it. And so I and I and I I've seen it every single time in every room that I've been in. And I can document so many of these series from fundraising while pregnant, right? Me and my I I have, you know, two amazing co-founders, my brother and my other brother, Jacques, um, who is not here today. He um was my technical co-founder, and him and I um had our families right at the same time. So we've we've both had babies like right, you know, we're both his wife was pregnant always at the same time that I was pregnant. And we're fundraising for our, 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 our Series A. And um, just I remember just going into the room and I'm obviously vividly pregnant, right? Vividly pregnant. And I had mentors tell me, amazing mentors, that I know their hearts are in the right places to not share my pregnancy. And I could see like Sal's like shaking his head of like, hold it for as long as like you can because, and it's not you, it's them. It's they're, they're gonna, they're gonna have preconceived judgment before you walk into the room, their mind, whether they want their mind to be made up or not, their, their mind is going to have doubt. It's going to have that, that check boxed out. And even while fundraising, Jacques was also, his wife was pregnant at the same time, but no one's asking him 
what he's going to do in the business post after. No one's asking him about his child care situation, right? Whereas I'm being asked the questions on, and what does that have anything to do with my amazing business that we have here? But there are some very, very hard, you know, it's not just the, it's not just those biases, but it really, that when you, when you share what you're sharing right now about Hillary and, you know, the being the first, that's why what I believe this, and this is the reason why I stand up here. And this is why people always ask, why do you do this? Like we have, I've, I've been building CEO school for three years now. And it has been really hard to go like while building a bit like a, a, you know, a unicorn business, but building a massive, and then, uh, and I had investors along the way. I had so many people constantly tell me that, you know, this is distracting. CEO school is distracting, but you can't be what you can't see. Right. And I never saw, I wish I, and I, I, I wanted, I, I didn't have examples like, like Huma, right? Like Hillary, like others who are the first of their kind. And that's why these stories are so important so that my girls can grow up and see women to say that they aren't limited to arts and, 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 um, you know, whatever the current, they, they can see it. Cause once you see it, then it does uncap to your potential to see what your worlds can be too. And it is so important for not only for like our stories to be told, but this is why it is important for minority stories to be told, why it is important for women's stories to be told. And, and it just, it, it does, it makes me, it makes me sad and it sucks that she has to like be the first to go through that and you have to go through that. But it's also inspiring as hell because if that had not happened and now I could say that, you know, it's it's only going to be a matter of time until we do have our first woman president. And I will say my daughter, Mila, at school when they had like the dress up, like dress for your career. And I told her, I was like, Mila, you should dress up as, as president. You know, like you should be president. And she was like, oh, but girls can't be president. And they, they taught her. And I went to the school and I had a real hard conversation with the school and girls, not that they can't, they have not been president, but that is a huge difference in language to a young, to a first grader. Can't and not been done, but her, her mind, right? That's, that's what it's going to hold on to. And guess what? We freaking dressed up. We all went as president of the United States. And it is so important because you really can't be what you can't see. And so thank you for that movement, although the outcome did not come out where. Amen to everything you just said, because, yes, it, it, it did spark, you know, many movements in this country and, and frankly, all of them necessary. And for us to have hard conversations about the state of our country and the state of our society. And so you have to look at the, you know, silver lining in this one. And the number of, you know, women in Congress now are just women who will come up and say, I was inspired to do this after her loss. That's what, you know, made me give up my nursing job and decide to run for Congress, uh, you know, as, you know, women did. But And it also can have the opposite effect. You know, I ended up writing, you know, I've been traveling the last two years. Uh, yeah, share, share a little bit about the book. Talking about my, my memoir, but... When you said it, when I was standing back there and you said the number of men who told you that, you know, you were not legitimate in the space that, that you were occupying. When I um, chose to write my book, it came out in November of, of 2021, and the, the origin story for the book is that in 2016, and, and that campaign, for those of you who don't, you know, remember, and for, you know, there might also be PTSD for a lot of people, I mean, it was crazy. We had all kinds of crazy accusations. and in part because, you know, going back to the negative of being different. So in the 90s and the early 2000s, I, it was very, to me, I carried my differences with a lot of pride. And, and frankly, I also recognized the fact that I was a little different, a little exotic, and where does she come from, and what's that, you know? And that was 
you know, all just part of being who I was. And then that shifted when the right, uh, you know, some people on the extreme wanted, needed to find a boogeyman. Like, what's the other? And so in 2012, I was first accused of, of, of being a traitor to my country um, because of where I came from and where I grew up. And it's like, God knows what she's whispering into the president and the secretary of state's ear and only for no reason except that I was Muslim and no one's in Saudi Arabia. They had zero evidence. Completely kind of, you know, blast my family, made up all kinds of stories about my parents. And that was the first time I really had to deal with that kind of vitriol and hate. And so I, these five members of Congress send a letter to the president and all the inspector generals, the various agencies saying this woman should be investigated, you know, for, for whether she is, you know, not a true, you know, uh, a, a true patriot. And so that is blasted, you know, for months. And then ISIS puts out their hit list saying, well, she's, you know, we don't send her back here because she's on our hit list. Do you have a thought? She, she, you know, she works for this blasphemous government. And it was like, I didn't know, you know, where you belong here or there. It's like here, you know, send her back home. There, they're like, we're going to execute her when she gets here. And so it was, and by the way, it's one of the reasons I chose to write my book, Both And. So kind of going through this journey and then being in a difficult, very public marriage. I mean, everything about my life when I was married to my ex-husband, you know, we lived, you know, in the New York Post and the, and the Daily Mail. And that um, when I finally wrote my book, the young woman who's doing the research for me, she says, you know, you researched all the articles about you in the last 15 years. And all the headlines are, what is she thinking and what is wrong with her? And uh, so... But I, all of that having been said, um, I was, you know, very private, very protective of my life. I said, I'm, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna share my story. And um, so the campaign ends 2016, and this is the point of having mentors because I've had some extraordinary ones, and you know, my dear friend Anna Wintour and and I are, are very much my mentor. You know, was the first person to call me up and says, you know, we're going out um, to we're gonna theater and dinner. So I get out of bed, take a shower. I hadn't done that in a while. And the first thing she says, you should tell your story. It's an extraordinary story. People need to hear it. I think so, when, like, the editor of Vogue tells you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, My mentor, not. Anna Wintour. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No way. It's insane. I'm never going to do that. So I go the next day, tell my boss, like, Anna thinks it's I got to go spray I'm like, no, no, no. But this is the point of the story. Way more important than either of them <laughs> in, this, in this case. Three weeks later, I go to lunch with one of these men who gives advice to women, but, or just people. <laughs> And I'm at lunch with him at some fancy midtown restaurant. He says, what are you thinking about doing? You know, what are you thinking about doing now? I was like, I don't know. I mean, you know, a couple of people think I should write my memoir, tell a story. And uh, he looks at me, just straight up, why would you do that? And I said, well, I mean, it's a pretty great story. <laughs> a lot of people connect to it. Like, I don't know. I mean, people think it's a good story. I actually think it's a good story. And he's like, no, no, I, I don't think anyone, first of all, I don't think you should write the book because, number one, you're never going to be able to explain to people why Hillary lost because she should have won. And I don't think anybody wants to hear about all that scandal. Like, I think we're done. And I thought, I walked out of that lunch and I was writing the book. <laughs> he's the one who convinced me to do it. It was somebody telling me that, number one, not to do it, and number two, that it wasn't worthy is what, you know, led me to write that book. And I think, going back to your origin story and your dad, and what Sal does for you, and Jacques do for you, was when I was nine, and uh, you know my dad was a big reader, and he would always bring books back from his travels. And one year when I was nine, he brought me a book. He would lay, n number them. We didn't go to one, two, three, four. The book that was num listed number one was um, Silas Marner by George Eliot. 
Now, for those of you who know this book, it's a pretty dense, you know, it's a pretty dense book and it has a very serious theme. But I didn't understand, I couldn't really, you know, understand most of the language, but I read the introduction and it said, George Eliot was actually a woman named Marianne Evans. I remember going to my dad and saying, I don't understand. Why did Marianne Evans have to write this book and use the name George Eliot? And he said, listen, in the Victorian era, women were not taken seriously as writers. So she had to use a man's name to publish this book, which is a renowned book, even then, an English book. He said, but don't worry. When you grow up and you write your own story, you will use your own name, Aww. and everyone will take it seriously. And it's remembering, and, but to that point that you, you made earlier, it is, it comes back to that core of where you come from and what you believe in yourself, and that's work that you have to do on yourself. And the final thing I'll say about, because I, Samira, you and I are twins on this subject, and we are so mind-melded, but it is the importance of bringing men into the conversation. Yes. I think it's really, really important that whenever people say to me, you know, you surround yourself with, you know, with men that have all this bad behavior, it's like, well, how do you break the cycle? So I'm raising an 11-year-old boy, and I want to raise him not just to respect women, but not fear their power, because a lot of it is that. And so I carry with a lot of pride when my son Jordan, who you have met, that when he, you know, we had this opportunity once to go, you know, whatever, to see this tennis thing, and Roger Federer was going to be there. And I was saying to Jordan, Jordan, you are about to go and, you know, see the greatest tennis player of all time play tennis. He's five. And we're walking, and he's like, Mommy, Serena Williams is here? And it was to him, because to him, that's who the greatest tennis player of all time was. But those are conscious, intentional things that we have to do, and, and, and that is work, and it's effort, but it's, it's worth it. Oh, that was so beautiful. And it does sum up exactly who Huma is and why I was so excited to bring her for this. I mean, there's one person, this, uh, this episode that, you know, is live here, but our audience is tuning in from and is, is listening from all over the world. This is special to me in so many ways because we I do feel that connection. It is, it's really, it's it's so special that you are here today telling your story on today's show for CEO School, celebrating this. And I love that somebody told you, tell a woman she can't do something. Yes. Right. And that is when that that is when it happens. And and and, and what I want to what it shouldn't have to be that way though. Right. It shouldn't have to be that way. I think one of the things that I have found after meeting so many incredible CEOs and so many of them are sitting right here in the front faces. These are these are all faces of CEOs. These are million plus CEOs with the most incredible companies. Right. That are not the more traditional when you when you think about a CEO. Right. But one thing that I have found after every single woman that I have talked to that is is running a business, women don't just start businesses for like the shit's sake of starting a business. They're not just like, oh, I just want to start a business and go make money, which there's nothing wrong because nothing that happens when women make more money. But women start businesses because they're so tired of someone else not solving this problem that has become it's just this problem that they that, that they have. They, there is a there is a problem here, and no one else is finding a solution for it. And they feel like they're tired of trying to get somebody else to find a solution. So we're the problem solvers, and we're like, okay, we'll just freaking have to go solve it ourselves. And that is literally every woman's story, and it comes from the fact that she was told no at a certain point. No one else was solving that problem, and. And hopefully this next generation of all of us here that are the first of our kind in so many ways, um, you know, hopefully our daughters don't have to, to to be that. And that is the hope that we have for our future, our generations. But, you know, Samira, I just have to end with saying, I, I think you are so extraordinarily special in this space in that you could have waited. I've, I've said this to you. 
until you're, you know, two decades from now, when you're ready to retire, or you could retire tomorrow. The fact that you're doing it in real time and and doing it with such optimism and such hope, and not and it's not just this, you know, kind of, you know, fifty thousand foot language. It is real, actionable. Here's how you do it. Here's how I'm going to help you. And you are going to change the lives of hundreds of thousands of women who already are. Nothing about this being a millionth download surprises me. So I just want to thank you for your leadership, for your vision, and for showing us the way because we need you. And so it's with a great amount of gratitude. I know it isn't easy. Uh, that I thank you for having me on the podcast and thank you for what you do for all of us women. Thank you, Huma, and thank you for that. And thank you, thank you, Inc. And thank you all of uh, everyone here today for such an incredible special episode. I, ho I hope all of our audience from around the world that's tuning in and listening is enjoying this. We could not have done this without your love and support and every single, wherever you tune in from, from your from your drive, from your kitchen counter, from your office, from, you know, when the baby's asleep, you know, it's, it, it, you know, all of the, all of your ears like really matter. And I know we're all in this together and it is a movement and Huma, thank you for all the things that you've done. And we're, you know, I'm just, I'm so inspired by you. And I know all of us listening here are so inspired by today's show. Thank you so much for being here today at CEO school. Thank you everyone. That was so great. Thank you. I just want to hug you. Thank you for tuning into today's show. If you loved it, leave us a review. We are so proud to bring you authentic conversations, game changer expert guests, and valuable content on and offline. The best compliment you can give us is by screenshotting today's show and tagging us on Instagram at CEO School and at Sanira Madani. We are obsessed with swag, so don't be surprised if we want to send you some. Thanks for tuning into class today. And remember, nothing bad happens when women make more money.